on this week's Bet the Process episode. It is a very special episode because Jeff is not there except for the interview. Uh, Jeff interviews Maria Ho. But before that, we have my brother Tom Peabody on to recap the Masters. And we ask him the seven questions and generally some other discussions on golf. And with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a town with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage and sports gambling is. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. It is a very special episode because it is an episode that does not have Jeff on it until our interview later on with Maria Ho. But I'm actually here with, with my brother, Tom, and we are going to recap the Masters and talk a little bit about uh, golf and our golf process and, and how tilted we were at John Rahm winning when we didn't bet on him. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks, man. Dream come true. Long time listener, uh, first time guest. You know, you know the drill. So, how was your Masters week? Uh, probably a lot like yours. Um, it was. I mean, I love the Masters. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year, and having lots of money on the line is makes it better in some ways. But I also kind of miss the days of just watching four days straight and not really caring who won. You know what I mean? Just sort of taking it all in. But I, uh, I don't think, I don't think I grew up watching the masters as a kid regularly really? or at all. I, I got into oh. golf. I got into golf probably later than you did. I think we got into golf at like the same time, but I'm six years younger than you. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So first off, what, what, what's up with Rory? Oh man. I mean, I can't claim to know, but, uh, we, we made him, we made him the favorite. We made them him higher yeah. than Scheffler. We made him higher than Rom. How much of, I mean, and how do we, I, I think this is something that I've thought about. Um, that's a weakness of, of the way I model things. He's, it seems like Rory puts so much pressure on himself and he just, he's not a closer. Like he's won golf tournaments, yeah. but he just doesn't seem like a closer by nature. He's not like Brooks Kepka, where despite the fact that Brooks didn't win, like, you know, Kepka isn't exactly going to choke. He's, you know, he's a bulldog in there and like, like Tiger, the same thing, right? Those guys get in the lead and, and, but Rory just, it feels like he's, he doesn't have the killer instinct. He's too nice. Yeah. It's like he only plays well when he's after he's shot five over the first day. And then he's like, okay, no pressure. And then he goes out and like, I don't know. I, I don't want to say I buy into the narrative, but at the same time, there's a pretty big sample size at this point of Rory not showing up for majors. Um, and especially, I think he puts pressure on himself to get the last of the, the grand slam. And it's like every year, you know, he's gearing up for this so much. He played so many practice rounds there. Well, um, you want that lifetime to, like, go invite. out there. Yeah. But like to go like, out there and I want to be seeing 60 year old Rory. I want to see 60 year old Rory in 25 years playing the masters. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still think that he will win a Masters before yeah. his career is over. I, yeah. I mean, I just think he's going to be really good for the next at least 10 years. And I don't know. I think the odds are, are better than than not that he'll get it done. But we'll see. Um, Brooksy, though, showing up was, was kind of cool. I actually kind of like that. And nice that we didn't have the mega fade on him. I feel like we always have the mega fade on him. I mean, we made him a pretty big long. I think we made him 130 to one before the tournament. And he went off it. I mean, I don't know what you were able to bet. Like, I mean, I think that his odds shortened throughout the week. I, I, I'm, I don't remember. It was somewhere around 50 to one or something like that. But you're right. I don't know how we didn't end up fading him on more matchups. But I'm, I'm happy about that. So yeah, it was nice that like we had... It was, I don't know, usually, and listeners to the show definitely know this, but we're generally fading like Morikawa, and there's some other dudes that we're fading. Uh, but like this year, we didn't fade Morikawa. Well, really. we, we, we've been, we were, we've been Morikawa fades maybe the last few years more than we've been on him. But this is before your time, Tom. We, oh, I know we used we were to be a big Morikawa backer back no, in the day was, when he came out as an amateur. You know, he was he was the Gordon Sargent before Gordon Sargent. Jesus, that dude did not show up. That was hey. like such a well, it was just so funny that everyone was like, oh, my God, this kid. And then he goes out and just implodes. Well, look, I mean, if if JT Poston had shot plus nine, I don't think everybody would have been like, oh, my God. But like it's I know, yeah, I know. JT Poston just, hired than Sargent. And we had and get like the, Sam Bennett was uh, the guy, the amateur who who I think we made sergeant about a minus 205 favorite against bennett in a matchup so if you think about it like yes there's a huge difference between how those two perform but you you do see those things things. i know and i I would say with something like that an amateur that and and let's face it gordon sergeant didn't get in on purely on qualifying criteria at all he got a special invite got invited because he hits the ball far i didn't even know that i didn't even know that before but I just know that his numbers say he's good, but he didn't, he hasn't won. I guess he did win. He did win a pressure event, the NCAAs. Yeah. It's a pretty big deal. Championship. Man, Sam Bennett. Are you going to talk about his slow play? Well, that, and just like that dude's facial hair. Like I just can't get over him as a human. I sort of don't want him to be good because I don't want to look at him. What do we do about slow play? Can we, can we get a pitch clock for, golf because i think i think 100 for baseball is great i think they need to do something or like golf is sort of the last if baseball is changing how it does things then like golf needs to as well you know what i mean like baseball is the oldest kind of american pastime type of thing and and everyone's like okay this is way too long um and i think golf's the same way like everybody's playing it thinks that they're playing like six hour rounds at the old course uh the players hate it the fans hate it. It's like a very select few that can sit through that long, you know? Well, the people that are playing slow, do you think they even hit, do you think they hate it? Mm, I don't know because Cantlay is just in his own world. Like it's not even that he just plays slow. He like walks slow. I, he like does everything slowly. He's like a moving in molasses. I hate betting on that guy. I actually like Cantlay. So I, I sort of don't like that. He's the villain right now, but, uh, he is he is really slow. He's painful to watch. Just painful. I, I love his little foot shuffle where he's like when he's he doesn't, to put it, yeah. he shuffles for like you never know where they're gonna move. seconds. <laughs> he's like the opposite of uh 
Horschel, he gets set up and then shuffles forever and putts, whereas Horschel like sneaks up on the ball and then boom. <laughs> he does. It's like, oh, boom, sneak attack. He, quick he always sneaks up on the on the putt. It's his strategy. Um, so, yeah, but I want to switch gears a little bit real quick. Okay. Um, I want to hear a little bit about in your professional capacities, what a master's week is like for you and by extension for, for us and what sort of that entails. How are major weeks different? I mean, I think they're just different in that everything comes out earlier. Like there are markets, outright markets up for weeks before. So you can accumulate some positions, which we did this year um, and had some good numbers as a result. Yeah, but we didn't Um, win any of them. No, we got absolutely blanked on We got that CLV. We did. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's just like everything comes out a lot earlier. So we're basically, I would say we're, we are where we percentage wise of our positions, we arrive there way sooner just because all the markets are up Monday and we have more inaction, like twice as much as any other week by like the end of Monday, pretty much I'd say. And then like, we're still adding the positions, but it's, there's so much liquidity and, and so many markets that it's a week where we have to really be careful about tracking exposure or else we end up like a master situation last year where, if McElroy doesn't get a top 10, we're like going to lose us like a medium sized home. You know, it's like medium sized home in which market? Like a pretty decent market. I feel like <laughs> no, we were going to get absolutely cleaned out last year. Yeah. It wasn't going to be pretty, but we, anyway, we, we, we got cleaned out in outrights this year, but luckily we had other things to make up for it. Yeah. Matchups, matchups were good. Outrights were over. But that is our how mega, go. Our mega fades were Burns. No, in order, I think Cam Smith, Minwoo Lee, Burns, DeChambeau, and Tiger. And Homa. And Homa. Oh, yeah. Homa was like maybe number three on that list. So, yeah. I, I don't think we could have drawn up better for that. It was an all time fade week for sure. And we had one matchup on Cam Smith, and it was against Jason Day. And that yeah. ended up winning. So that was awesome. Although we lose, we lose day being top Australian as a result of his. I'll tell you what, in terms of uh, being tilted. Hey, we I haven't like gotten it... there yet. Oh, okay. Sorry. I have to ask you about your tilted moment of the week. Tom, <laughs> okay. what was your tilted moment of the week? I've never been on a week? podcast before, you know, this is new to me. My tilted moment of the week. Um, the thing is, there wasn't anything that was that tilting because it's not like we ever really had anybody sniffing the lead. Like we got a little ROM after what well, round two, but. Um, we, we, there wasn't like, and none of the matchups were like painful, except I would say can't lay on Sunday was pretty painful. Like second half of Sunday. Cause he was like keeping it together. We had him against Shoffley and Morikawa. And we had him, we had him in, in top, top five, five top ten. and top yeah. 10. And he was looking both, like, he and was, those were both to win a significant five figure sum. Yeah. So he was probably like a hundred thousand dollars swing for us there or more just by like sucking on sunday so um but that is outweighed by the positive swing from cameron smith having a bad weekend true max home having a bad weekend sam burns having a bad weekend yeah it's so what so what is the tilted moment i I, you know i can't really think of like a one tilted moment man like i don't doesn't have to be betting what do you mean so my tilted moment i was at orioles opening day with my pops we we drove up from DC. I was in DC for my brother-in-law's surprise birthday party. And 
you know, it was a packed house. Uh, it was a sellout or there were at least four seats remaining when I looked, when I actually bought a seat. I did not use StubHub. I actually bought a seat from the Orioles website because there were good seats. Um, but the concession lines were like absolutely insane. And the people working there basically had no idea what they were doing. Somebody was like, you have to remember, it's these guys' first day. And it's it's their first day. And like, you know, game two, there's going to be a crowd of like, you know, 13,000 probably if they're lucky. In game one is like 40 something thousand. Mm -hmm. And so, so you have these people that like, don't even know how the systems work. Like when I finally was able to buy a beer um, and some, um, I got something at the chicken shack, which the menu didn't even have chicken on, but nothing that was on the menu was actually offered there. It was really weird. You had a little self-service kiosk thing. And then I didn't have to show my receipt to anybody. I just picked up a chicken thing. There was a, you said there was no chicken. There was chicken, but the menu didn't have chicken on it, even though it was called the chicken Wait, shack. Okay. It's it had sausage. Shack. Yeah, it, it didn't make any sense. It had like sausage and pizza on the menu, but th it's like they gave it the wrong menu. But so you could just take a like beer from the fridge and then that's, nobody's there checking anything. Um, no, I actually did pay. I had to wait in line for, for 20 minutes for that um, because nobody actually knew about that. Like the other ones, there were these ridiculously long lines and I was in line waiting for beer later on. And were the lines moving slowly and my tilted moment was when i realized that the only reason the line was moving was because people were dropping out of line and that no beer was being served there like they had run out of beer oh no yet there's a whole cooler of, like that's closed off that actually has beer and so when they're wheeling in warm beer that's when i said i'm out of here all right if i were jeff right now i'd say something snarky because you sound like an old man yelling at clouds right yeah now, but <laughs> But Lesson I learned. love you like, and you're my brother, so I won't say anything. As somebody uh, in line told me, opening day, it's just hot dogs and beer. They can't fuck it up that bad. Who told you that? Well, because it's the first day. Like, you don't know if they're... You know, it's the first day for people cooking the food. Okay, on a baseball note, moving forward, my tilted moment was Ryan McKenna dropping that fly oh. ball to end the game. Yeah. That was brutal. I, I don't know if that, anyone that knows that, but... That has to be all time. Like Orioles yeah. defensive replacement in two outs, nobody on fly routine fly ball hits him in the glove. He drops it next batter, walk off home run for the Red Sox. Like, that was brutal. Does not get worse than that. I mean, I'm sure it could get worse, but anyhow, that was probably my, my tilted moment. It was a pretty good weekend for me. I was recording some music. How did that go? And where can, where can listeners find your music? Oh, the they seven listeners. I don't Seven listeners may not help your audience because you have a presumably an audience of bigger than seven, but no, I have like maybe four, and one of them is my mom. So uh I could use I could use all of the seven. Uh just on like Spotify, Apple Music, all that stuff. Um, it's not out yet because I'm just recording it, but I have some stuff on Spotify. But this will be better. I promise that. It's my shameless plug. Okay. So all right, back to golf. Back to the masters. Are there any insights we can glean from the event? Is is Rom were we wrong to like we kind of wrote off Rom a little bit before the tournament? And I mean it's kind of tilting having Rom win when we're not betting on him just because like we we were so early to the party on Rom um overall. Yeah. And his ball striking had just really suffered in the weeks before. But yeah. I mean, we were certainly wrong. I wouldn't say that we were counting him out. Like, we still 
liked him, just not at the, at his price. And I think that, like, obviously the short-term form thing there was being overblown. Like, John Rahm is still, like, a top few player in the world, probably the best player in the world. Um, so, I don't know, man. I, I think, yeah, it's tilting. But was it more tilting than if Patrick Rogers had won last week? You know, probably not. That wouldn't have been tilting because we accumulated a position mid turn. I don't know. I think I would have <laughs> still been tilted. I was kind of happy he didn't win just because I want to get rich when he wins. Yeah. <laughs> um, what can we glean? I think an interesting thing to talk about is the weather angle. Like that was pretty much like the defining uh, characteristic of this weekend is like the weather and trying to predict how it was going to play out because you had obviously thunderstorms you knew play was going to get stopped but you didn't know when and you didn't know who it was really going to affect so i think trying to predict that and you can speak to this a little bit more than me because you were kind of doing most of the weather modeling but we need a weatherman on staff is what i've come to to realize so if any of the seven listeners are weather or meteorologists or amateur meteorologists like mike trout uh send us an email i think the hardest thing for weather is being able to handle the possibility of delays and the impact of rain because the impact of rain really varies depending on the type of rain. Like if it mm-hmm. rains, if it rains in the morning and you have an afternoon tea time and you're going to get a course that's softer and it's great for you. But if it rains mm-hmm. while you're playing, you know, it could so have a big impact or it could have a, a smaller impact depending. Like if the course was really lightning fast before, then it's maybe a net positive, but like you kind of need to know course conditions. And then, and then if you're forecasting it, like, look, you know, there was a chance of thunderstorms Thursday afternoon. If that happens, play gets suspended, it pushes back guys. So you can't just assume that just because this guy teed off at two o'clock, you know, you can count on two o'clock to seven 30. Cause this is how long they take to play golf now. Um, and threesomes would, will be like the time he's out, the guy's out on the course. It might be, into Friday morning. And what we saw was, I think, almost the worst case scenario for the early late tea times. Because, and, and that was for, forecasted to be the worst side of the split. You had the wind kind of forecasted to die a little bit throughout the day on Thursday and then pick up a little bit throughout the day Friday. And you had you had a chance of thunderstorms in the afternoon, but not a significant chance. And that didn't end up happening. Um, whereas, um, you had a chance of rain on Friday afternoon being pretty strong. And we did see that as the wind picked up. And then, I mean, I don't think that they would not have suspended play were it not for the tree going down. Is that right? Yeah. yeah because I, think that's correct. I wasn't watching at that point because um, I was at the Orioles game, but there was the suspension for lightning, but then that was, then it was just rain after that. So, so, I mean, first off, we just need to, we, we don't just need a meteorologist. We need like an arborist, someone to assess yeah. the, the, the stability of, of the trees. trees and the topsoil or whatever it is. I think, I think the PGA tour needs an arborist. So, so basically what you had happen was like something we thought might've happened just because of the thunderstorm chance. The fact that, that they're not able to finish the second round on Friday, but what happened that we didn't expect well, or we didn't know was whether or not they would actually try to play through the weather on Saturday, given the fact that it was supposed to be pouring down rain starting like late Friday all the way through the day Saturday. Mm-hmm. And indeed they did 
because the weather, the rain wasn't as heavy, I guess, overnight or early Saturday. And they played till mm-hmm. what, like three o'clock. And so it ended and it was like 45 degrees. It was Tom. It, I was watching and I was like, look miserable. What did it remind you of? It reminded me of Cabot links. Yes, sir. <laughs> we played, we played around at Cabot links this or two rounds. And I, I would, I would probably say a little bit worse weather. It was high forties but the wind was like 30 plus miles an hour and it was pouring rain. Yes, it was brutal. And, it, and, and we it didn't was have rain gear. course on the lane. Yeah. We bought rain gear after the first round when it didn't matter. Cause we were just soaked to the bone. It was maybe the most miserable round of golf I've ever played that first 18 holes, despite being on mm-hmm. such a pretty course. I know. But, I know. but the, the point is those guys, like they could have, if, if play suspended, if they don't play Saturday morning, the early late team gets the tee times, get the advantage of like, finishing their second round on early Sunday morning with nice weather, but yeah. instead it's, they get the the shit end of the draw. So, well, and the thing is like, it's such a judgment call by tournament officials. And so you're like, had they continued to play even for another hour on Saturday, the tournament might go completely different. Like Kepka might fix Kepka so tough and like he might've run away with it or both of those guys come way back to the field. Um, so I think that there are a lot of, like that's the hard thing. You can you can know what the weather's going to do, but you can't. It's like you trying to predict the college football playoff selection. You know, it's like you can know everything, but you really cannot model human behavior. You know what they need to do? Shotgun what starts. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, they, they need to just do fifty. As Patrick Reed said, it's more holes. fair. I I think that it was good for golf that the live guys competed. What do you think? I don't know. Give me your argument. Why? Why is it good? Because I think had the live guys just not been relevant at all, it would have been huge win for the PGA tour. They have all the bargaining power. Um, and I'm not saying I'm like pro live, but I think at this point they need to find a way to figure it out. Like it's well, not good you're, for you're pro live because our ROI on live events all time is like 25%. So no, I'm not pro live because of that. I'm not purely driven by uh, financial motives, but I just think that like the fact that those dudes competed and, and clearly are still really good golfers means that those guys have to figure it out and come to the drawing board. And the PGA tour can't just say, Oh, well we have all the power because you don't have any good golfers. Um, maybe people can disagree with me on that, but I think, I think it's good. I mean, I, Even thought though I hate Patrick Reed. The argument that some people are throwing out that these guys could only you know, the fact that they only played 54 whole events was going to hurt them. Like playing the last 18 doesn't make any sense. These guys play, you know, yeah. Like I I get the rust and also the whole thing of like, Oh, they're not playing against, against a strong competition. Neither was Gordon Sargent or Sam Bennett. Um, Neither was, no, it's, I I think, I think the, maybe something that there is true too, is that, some of these guys already got a lot of money. They might not have been as motivated to practice a lot. And I think Cam Smith said something about that, right? He said this off season, like, I, by the way, I liked how I liked his honesty and candor mm-hmm. and, and during the press conferences, but, but that he took, he didn't practice as hard in the off season really. And so I think that is a, certainly a, a thing, but I mean, they all remember, they all played the week before too. So yeah. And you had, you had a lot of these PGA guys. Like, I mean, Rory was coming off of playing seven rounds during the, um, the match play as was Scheffler for that matter, as was Burns. And who was the last guy? Cam Young didn't mm-hmm. seem to affect him, but 
There is this so, narrative though that like dudes are worn out. Like you saw Speed score about speed. It. which I mean I get it. Like it's a grind to go to a tournament every week and like walk the course and like go practice all the shots and everything. It's not, it's like not like you're just showing up and playing eighteen holes of golf every day. But at the same time, it's kind of a tough look to be like I'm so tired of playing golf. Okay, well I think we should wrap up the the golf. We'll get we'll let Jeff. Um, conduct his interview with Maria Ho, which you guys will get to listen to and I'll get to listen to as well. Um, but before we let Tom go, we have to ask him the seven questions. Oh, no, I don't. I and don't I did not like give him advance bit. notice of this. So, no. Um, so, are you ready? Uh, I'm ready as I'll be. Okay. Who is funnier, Rufus or Jeff? Mm, that's a hard one. Uh, do I have to pick one? What do we define as funny here? This is up to you. I'm going to say you. To keep okay. In the family. <laughs> and so that Jeff will continue to hate me as much as he already does. Okay. Uh, A, not true, but B, most people think that Jeff hates them. Um, well, he okay. actually sent me a letter in the mail that said, I hate you. Please never talk to me again. It was handwritten. Look. <laughs> okay um tom is clearly the funnier of the peabodies uh now question number two who is smarter rufus or jeff mm, god these are terrible questions um you've heard these questions before presumably. yeah but i don't i don't know uh and you can't pick a tie you get to I'll define go, it however you want mm, i'll go rufus in terms of sports betting and math and i'll go jeff in terms of life okay what is the least relatable food that you like least relatable food that i like um, i know it's not smoked mussels no it is certainly not smoked mussels uh blue cheese people like blue cheese what do people not like uh hawaiian pizza love that oh, I feel like, okay i don't know i'll go with that Okay. Uh, what is your favorite gambling moment? Mm, probably Matsuyama winning the Masters last year, just because I was pretty new to things. I mean, I've been doing it like a year, but that was our first like big, big win. That felt pretty good. Back in 2021. 2021, yeah. What is, the, what is your favorite bet you're making in the next year? And it doesn't have to be a financial bet necessarily. My favorite bet is the bet on myself to spend money and record music because I love doing music and I just figure why not? Why not invest in myself? What is the worst loss you've ever had? Ooh, worst loss? Does it, is it gambling related? You can answer it however you want. Uh, worst loss? Um... I mean, Mito Pereira comes to mind, but I feel like that's too easy. I feel like I want to do something non-gambling related. Uh, this, is not good. this is not good podcast. I'll just go Mito Pereira, U.S. Open. Okay, and last question. Who's the person you follow blindly? Mm, follow blindly. Lizzie Peabody, our sister. Good answer. Well... Tom, thank you. It was a pleasure having you on. And 
Uh, I, please forward me a copy of that letter Jeff sent you. Love to see um, it. I burned it in a fit of rage, actually, so I can't do that. Okay, and with with that, we will we'll, we'll bring on Maria Ho now. We now welcome in Maria Ho uh, to bet the process. And what's exciting is we have someone who is an actual real live poker champion and professional poker player and um, one of the pioneers in the game. Um, So welcome, Maria. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. To our, so we we kind of always make a joke because I think we now have more than seven listeners, but we always talk about how we only have seven listeners. So to our seven listeners, um, probably maybe a couple of them may not know who you are. You are. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your background and uh, how you got into the world of poker? Yeah. So I was born in Taiwan and I immigrated to the States when I was four and a half years old, grew up in LA, was raised here. Um, and then it wasn't until college that I discovered Texas Hold'em specifically. But before that, I was always into card games, strategy games. I played bridge with my grandfather growing up. And so I kind of knew that there was an interest there and that I had a knack for games. But um, when I went to college, I started playing with some friends and I was just beating them on a regular basis. And I'm like, huh, well, why am I sitting at home making money off of my friends when maybe I could take this show to the casino and uh, try my luck there. And honestly, uh, I graduated college just to make my parents happy and let them know that I have a degree and something to fall back on. But ever since I graduated, I've just been playing poker professionally and I never looked back. So if you were, if you consider yourself, say like a nine in terms of poker ability now, when you like decided to go pro, what level were you? I would say I was probably a five. Like I, I definitely was winning at the stakes that I was playing because I was tracking my results. Um, But when I think about how much I know now, it really dawns on me how little I knew back then. Um, But I think that I was just smart about the way that I played. I I picked my spots. I would game select well. Um, I never got in over my head bankroll wise. And so I think those are the things that kept me in the game, even if skill wise, I wasn't quite good enough maybe to to be a consistent winner um, when I thought I was really good. Um, But those things kept me in the game so that I could keep getting better. How did you learn? So this is something actually that people deal with a lot in sports betting. How did you learn the concept of bankroll management? Like when you said you never got in over your bankroll, what did that, what does that mean in poker? And how do you think about that as it pertains to sort of any of these kind of like gambling type games, like in blackjack, we had a similar thing about bankroll management and whatnot. Yeah, well, definitely it's one of those things where you start by tracking your results and then you can kind of gauge what your win rate is going to be in the games and the stakes that you're playing. And there is always kind of a big discussion or debate of what that barometer looks like, like what is the average big blinds per hour you should be winning in a cash game. You know, some players will say five, some players will say 10, but obviously, you know, that it's somewhere in between five to 10 big blinds an hour um, that you can have a sustainable hourly rate to actually make this a job to actually make this become something that will pay the bills that will keep you afloat that will allow you to grow your bankroll so that you can also move up stakes as well. So for me, it was 
about tracking the results, figuring out my win rate in the games that I was playing in, because in the beginning I started in cash games. Um, so it was just obviously a little bit easier in the sense that variance is very high in poker, but even more so in tournaments. Um, so sometimes you can play a hundred tournaments live and, and not have a good result. And so obviously your graph is going to look really, really bad and skew very much towards uh, the fact that this might not be sustainable anymore, but in cash games, because you can buy back in, because, you know, even if you bust the buy-in that you came in for, but the game's really good and there's a lot of you know bad players in it, you can still buy back in and have the chance to write then and there in that good situation, capitalize on that opportunity to win your money back and then some. Um, and also, you know, just the hours that you put in, you just have to treat it like any normal job and all of those things kind of play into taking it seriously, bankroll management, and just being able to uh, have that longevity in a game that sometimes breaks people both, you know, literally and figuratively. So back to this bankroll concept, if, how would you calculate what table, like, let's say I was like, okay, I have, I don't know, like the average player probably starting off has maybe 10, $20,000 or something like that to their name to maybe go play. Is that like, I mean, does that, is that like, if you were like, oh, my bank, my bankroll as I, when I started was $10,000, is that way too low? Or is that like, how would you think about that? Well, it would be relative. I want you to take me through like it, cause I don't have a job right now. And if I decide I want to become <laughs> a professional blackjack player, I mean, a professional poker player, I want to understand the best route to do it. So yeah, we go it- back to this bankroll concept. Absolutely. It's definitely relative to the stakes that you're playing. Right. But right. There's only a certain stake where, you know, that's the minimum for you to be able to make a living. You can play a dollar, two dollar or 50 cents, a dollar or 25 cent, 50 cent with a thousand dollars. And that would be considered enough of a bankroll for those stakes. Right. Because the, the stakes are so low. So right. really, if you only had say $20,000, then you would have to, your stakes would be dictated based on your starting. What is the, what is the rough calculation. I would say say it would be something like, you know, for a live, for live games, it's different between live games and online games, because obviously in online games, you see more hands. And so you are able to also play multiple tables. So you might need, let's say a bigger bankroll, if you're playing three or four tables online at a time, but in a live scenario, I would say that having about, you know, 30 to 50 buy-ins, for the stakes that you're playing will be adequate if you're a skilled player. So 30 to 50 buy-ins means something like in your average, let's say $2, $5 game at the casino, there will be a plaque that says the minimum buy-in is this and the maximum buy-in is this for the game. Meaning anybody entering into that game cannot buy in for any less or any more than that amount. In a typical two, five game, most casinos, I would say the that would be about $1,000, right? So if we're talking about 30 buy-ins or 50 buy-ins, then that would be $30,000 or $50,000 would be kind of the range, right? Got it. So in that situation, if you're a reasonable player, you could expect to make, like you said, five to six big blinds or five to six. Yeah, I would say five is on the lower end, but I would say I never like to, when I'm actually giving real bankroll advice, I never like to, you know, estimate on the high side. So yes, let's just go with five big lines an hour. That would make it 
in a two five game, $25 an hour. So then if you think about it, you know, if you're playing somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, you can make around $250 a day playing those stakes. Right. So interesting. And, and to do that comfortably, you probably need about a 50 K bankroll as well as kind of what we, what we got to, right. Yeah, that's what I would say as what people would call a bankroll knit. You know, there's definitely plenty of people who think that if you're a skilled player in that game, then yeah, 30 buy-ins is enough. Um, But I always like to have that extra cushion because again, the variance in poker, you could go on a bad run and you want to make sure that you have something that will keep you afloat during those times. And also I'm somebody who has always separated my expenses from my bankroll, whereas some people mix it all together, right? Some people think their bankroll and their life role is the same thing. And I don't. So let's say somebody only has, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to their name, but they have to pay rent every month and pay a phone bill and pay their, their car uh, loan or whatever. It's like, they're not even factoring those things in. They're just actually playing with their whole role on the table. No, we have this, we have this conversation all the time because we talk about like betting full Kelly or betting like half Mm -hmm. Kelly and what would you really bet? And especially around like hedging situations with big futures. Like if someone has, like I've kind of notoriously had some, some big futures that we've talked about whether to hedge and whatnot. Um, and understanding like when you are a professional better, like Rufus, my betting partner is, and my, my podcast partner is, is a professional better. And like, we talk about like what it means because he always talks about the fact that he's really under, under betting his payroll, his bankroll, because his bankroll is probably bigger than he is. And then, and then poker. So what, what percentage of poker players do you think, think about their bankroll as their like total net worth? Do you think most do, or do you think? Definitely most, uh, definitely most. I, I feel like in a way that's the mentality that you should have if you are one of those players that, you know, kind of go for broke. It's good, right? Because it kind of dictates not only how you look at um, your, your bankroll, but how you would play the game, right? So poker is a game where you have to be willing to risk your entire tournament life or all the money in front of you on a huge bluff. And you have to be able to be fearless and be reckless almost sometimes and have that mentality where you're, you're not afraid to lose it all. Um, So I think that that's why there is that, that correlation between that being the way the majority of poker players treat their bankroll, because that also dictates how they look at the game in a little bit and how they approach the game and how they play the game strategically. Um, I think poker is filled with gamblers that end up becoming very skilled at the game and not so much the other way around. Right. I think people stumble into poker because it's a little bit of, of, of that thrill of that form of gambling that you see, you know, the average casino goer gets. Um, But, but I think some of them just realize like, okay, I can be good at this game and then they hone their skills. Um, but I would say nowadays the, the poker player that is coming up, the younger generation, they're a lot different, um, because they grew up in this online era, because they grew up in, you know, what we've talked about, um, at, at the conference about this theoretically optimal strategy. Um, I think that those players are very studied and very methodical and, and are more just people that are interested in solving the game and in beating the game and then coming to play the game because they realize that there's a lot of poker players 
in the sphere that have these life leaks that are treating it like gambling and not necessarily always looking at it uh, as a skill game. And so I think they're here to take advantage of the people that kind of think that way. But, you know, up until 10 years ago or so, nobody was looking at it that way. And the way that people were learning poker was a little bit of trial and error. And so all of the players that were winners in, you know, back then were the ones that were the most aggressive, the more, the most reckless, the ones that were willing to risk everything. Um, so it's just a bit of a shift, I think, in the mindset of how people look at the game as well. So if you, if you go back to this concept of like these new skill, really skilled players, and we talked about this a little bit of the panel about this sort of game theory optimal and is poker solved. So you can, you tell us a little bit about like what this idea of game theory optimal means and how solved is poker. Yeah, I mean, people ask a lot of the times how solved poker is with all of these strategies coming out. And I would say that um, poker in terms of the way that you look at a traditional setup, nine players at a table, I think that's just not very solved at all because you know any type of strategies that these solvers have been able to formulate come from more of a, the heads up poker where it's just you against one other opponent. And so the variables and all the different dynamics and factors that play into, you know, what is the best decision or what is the best move to make at a certain point in a hand. Um, that's all a lot easier to calculate when you're only talking about one player's hand, one opponent and one person's stack size. But when you add in eight other people at the table, so many different combinations of hands, it's just very hard even nowadays to say that there is a perfect strategy for that. But game theory optimal, you know, in in its essence is really just finding the Nash equilibrium in the play that you're making, right? So you're just playing a style that is unexploitable, but you're not really gonna be able to win much or lose much if you're playing against someone that's playing that exact same style. But if you're willing to deviate and start exploiting the fact that we're playing against humans and not robots, so nobody's really playing optimally, uh, then that's where we're talking about how you're really able to capitalize on um, knowing this GTO strategy. That's just the baseline, but you're not really gonna win and you're not really gonna lose if you're playing somebody that plays that exact same style. Got it. That makes sense. So give me, let's take a step back. And we talked a little bit about bankroll management and I'm, I'm kind of saying this tongue in cheek, but I'm also kind of curious about this. Like, let's just say that, you know, I'm a reasonable poker player. I've played home games and, you know, I've played tournaments and whatnot, but I've never really studied the game and I've never really like gone through all the hard work that you guys that are professionals have. Let's say that I wanted to think about becoming a professional poker player what are the steps that I should think about doing to get to a point where I, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like stake myself and whatever and, and go after this. I think that it definitely nowadays will start with buying an online course in poker. And I say that over, you know, reading a book where that might've been the advice I would have given somebody 10 years ago, but books are so quickly outdated and the strategy continues to evolve that the only uh, platform and the only medium that can keep up with it 
is online content, right? So nowadays there's a ton of poker training sites out there that are creating videos to help people get better or help people that are completely new to the game get some fundamentals of the game of poker down before they start moving to some of the more advanced concepts. You know, I would never recommend somebody to right away, you know, get a solver and start running solves because you don't understand why the solver is telling you to play a certain way if you don't even have the fundamentals down. So getting the fundamentals down, you know, getting some online generic poker crash course would definitely help. And then I would say, I would tell them to put in the hours. I think I talked about tracking results and tracking results is really important to know if you have a skill edge in the game that you're playing in, but there is no substitute in my opinion and in my years of playing poker for just sitting down at the poker table and actually trying to apply some of the concepts and some of the theoretical things that you're learning online in a forum where you're risking your money. And so now all of a sudden that's really important, right? When you play in home games, that's why when people tell me, oh, is playing in a friendly home game a good way to learn? And I'm like, no, because when you play in home games with your friends and maybe there's not a lot of money on the line or or that money might not mean anything to you because you're, you're more there for the social elements of the game, um, then you're not in that till competitive diehard mode, right? You need to be in a casino setting where you're playing against total strangers, where really you are not trying to lose your money against these people that you don't know. And you're going to try to play your best. It's not just about, you know, targeting your friend because it would make for a funny story later. It's really about, okay, applying all of the things you learned and actually taking the game seriously. And honestly, the lessons that have stuck with me the most in poker are always the most expensive ones, right? It's the ones where I made a mistake and it cost me money that I did not want to lose. And then I would never, ever forget the fact that, okay, I should not have played that hand that way. Or maybe I should not have allowed my emotions to get the better of me and for me to play poorly because I got unlucky in the hand, right? So all of those things I would not have learned with the same emphasis that I did if I didn't just sit down at a table and and do it. Um, So, you know, there's really no substitute for that. Um, You can study all you want. You can watch all the online content you want, but uh, you kind of have to put your money where your mouth is. Do you, when you, when you have one of those moments, do you like journal the moments or how do you like, you know, I mean, how do you, because we, again, like as relating to sports betting, right. There is a lot of uh, moments that we all have where we know like some we made a mistake or, you know, like there's been a way that we've dealt with a certain situation. Like how, how do you learn from that effectively? Yeah, I would say that maybe not so now, but that element, that psychological part of the game is something that's very underrated or used to be very underrated. I think people didn't used to think about, okay, how can I emotionally and mentally try to still play well and not allow a certain setback or a mistake that I made cause future errors in my game. Um, And so for me, a lot of it is number one, if I'm still going to continue to play in the game after I make a big mistake, then I have to make sure that I forget about that hand and I'm going to move on to the next hand as though 
that hand didn't even happen. Because if you start dwelling on the mistakes that you just made while in game, that is only going to cause a snowball effect of you making even more mistakes. Um, but if it's something where it happened towards the end of the night and I'm leaving, or it's a big mistake that cost me my tournament life and now I'm out of the tournament and I have that time to step away and kind of reflect, then yeah, it's been a combination of meditating, of, of journaling and of trying to boil everything down into uh, just the the strategic part of, of where I failed. Um, I try to not, sometimes it's really easy to get attached to maybe the, the stakes that you're playing for. You know, sometimes it might be the emotions feel heightened because this is the biggest pot that you've ever lost of, in, of your entire life, or this is the biggest sports bet that you've ever made that you've lost, right? It's easy to think that those things might be associated with how you're feeling, but I have to really just make sure that the reason why I'm upset is because I made a mistake in the hand and not because I got unlucky, not because uh, um, somehow this, the money has emotionally affected me um, to a point where I don't feel like I can handle it. If I made a mistake in the hand and I am able to distill it down to that, then it allows me to feel more in control next time, because then I know I can rectify that because I know I can go back to studying that I can run this hand through the solver and it will tell me how I made a mistake. And next time I'll know how to play that situation better. And that helps me get over that moment because I know that next time that it happens, I'm in control of the situation and I'm going to be able to do better. What happens when you reflect on a you know, because I'm sure there's been times where you've been tilted and you've reflected on it and you've been like, no, that was the right, that was the right decision. I just got unlucky. Like, what, how do you deal with that? Um, it's, it's funny because it never really gets easier. Um, you know, I can accept getting unlucky, but that feeling of getting unlucky, um, I can accept that as a part of the game, but that feeling, uh, never, ever feels less worse than it, than it does in the moment. Right. Like there's always that like kind of shock factor of like, oh my gosh, I was a 98% favorite going into the last card, which has happened to me before in a really huge hand, you know, probably worth a couple hundred thousand dollars where I was 98% favorite with one card to come and I got unlucky. Um, and I remember just going home that day and, and feeling really bad about myself. Um, but then, you know, the next morning when I thought about it and I thought about, I, I, you know, I wrote the hand down, pulled out, you know, all the numbers. I was like, okay, on, on the flop, I was a 70% favorite on the turn. I was an 82% favorite and on the river, you know, going to the river, I'm a 98% favorite. I realized that in every step of the way, was I betting with when I had the best hand? Yes. Was I extracting value from my opponent when I had the best hand? Yes. But on the last card, when I had absolutely no control and all of the money was already in the middle by that point. And that's the point that, you know, lost the hand for me. Then that's something that I can live with. It, it, it never, you know, it still stings. Um, but like I said, I'm more angry and upset with myself when I make a mistake than when I get unlucky. Yeah, no, it's interesting though, because there almost seemed like when we talked about it, like you had some sense of also like calm when you realize that you made a mistake because you realize that that was something to, you could fix. Right. But when the luck happens, there's nothing 
to fix, right? You're just having to sort of wallow in that. There's no action around it. Um, when you go back to this concept that you and um, Schwan talked about this a lot on the panel, but this idea of like table selection, right? How does someone become good at table selection? How do I know? Like, again, if you go back to me, I roll into, you know, Artichoke Joe's or whatever the places are around the Bay Area that, that people play live poker and Cash Creek or something like that. I roll into these places. How do I, my first moment, think about table selection? And let's assume that I am playing like two, five, you know, or something like that. And I have my 50K bankroll. This seems like a realistic scenario. I think I might, I might play this out. So we'll see. So I walk in there. How do I figure out the table to play at? Yeah, I would say, you know, let's say you live in a place where it's not, let's say like a, a, a big city for poker, right? Then I think two, five is actually kind of the stakes where almost any game that you sit down at those stakes is going to be pretty good if you're a skilled player. But if we're talking about a big city like Vegas, where there's going to be a lot of pros milling around or LA, even like a big poker city where some people are just always there as someone trying to make a living playing the game, then you do have to be a little bit better about how you game select, but I would so you say- just avo- Are you avoiding those people? Like you can kind of identify that guy's pretty good and like, I'm going to stay away from that table. Yeah, you can't really identify it maybe just by looking at people. You definitely will still have to sit down and just play with them. So I wouldn't say that there's, you know, necessarily, a, you, there's not going to be a big sign on people's head that's like, you know, sit here, I'm a fish, right? So I think you still have to sit down and, and feel it out in the beginning. But like I said, I think even though it's a generalization, I think $2, $5 and anything below that are kind of the stakes where no matter where you are, it's going to be a pretty good game for somebody who's a skilled player. Um, but then another way to identify whether you're in a, you're sitting in a good game is just picking up on people's patterns, right? Um, I think immediately you can start spotting the people that are perhaps playing too many hands. You know, you're going to clock the fact that, okay, if this person's playing that many hands, and it's very unlikely statistically that they're being dealt this many good hands in such a short period of time, then that's probably somebody you want to keep an eye out for in terms of somebody who is going to be giving their money away a little bit, right? The person that's impatient, the person that you can tell is there for the action and they want to be involved all of the time. You know, you have a couple of people like that in that game. That's going to be probably a good game. Um, Another sign based on the way someone's playing that it's a good game is the ultra passive player, right? The the really tight passive player, the person who doesn't play really any hands, they're literally waiting for the nuts every hand. They're waiting for aces. They're waiting for kings. They're waiting for these premium holdings. But when they don't have anything, they give up really easily. So that's also another, you know, player type that you can pretty easily deduce that might be somebody that I would be able to take advantage of that style, you know? So you really have to start picking up on the patterns of how the players at your table are playing to fully determine, you know, how good this game is. Um, But again, it goes back to tracking results as well, because in these card rooms, you end up playing with a lot of the same people, right? At, At a local card room, maybe on a good day, there would be like 10 to 15 tables running. But at that particular stake, like at the two, five, 
limits, maybe only two tables of those stakes, right? So you end up playing with the same player pool. So then that's great for picking up on their tendencies, but also if you start tracking your results, then you can see, okay, if I'm playing in the same game with the same player pool and I'm able to consistently win X amount an hour, then I know that this is a good game and that my skill level on average is higher than the, the most of the players playing in this game. That's cool. All right. We're going to leave you with one fun question. We were talking off the air about this whole idea like that. I just did with Dave Chang on his podcast around this kind of eating scavenger hunt around Vegas. Like some of the things that he was talking about were like order an entire one topping pizza from the secret pizza place in Cosmo after at like 3 a.m. or something like that. And and bonus points if you eat the entire pizza yourself, that kind of thing. And then I talked about getting a chicken finger from Delilah because they have these incredible chicken fingers. Um, do you have a, a, a sort of a bucket level, a bucket uh, list Vegas food item for people? Mm, that's such a good question. I feel like you've already named two amazing places between Secret Pizza and Delilah's. Uh, Ooh, okay. Let me think. Okay. This is a little bit of a basic B uh, order, but it's not even an order because it comes for free. But I would say chips and salsa at Javier's and Aria is pretty elite for me in, in <laughs> Vegas. That's like a staple. It's not going to be a full meal. You're not going to get full off of it, but I crave that, that salsa and I'm, I'm there a lot and I will always make a stop there when I can. That's the SoCal girl in you too. Cause the ha Javier's is from Laguna beach originally. So the yeah, original... it is a little bit of that. I, I do love my Mexican food. Yeah. The, Vegas has so many of those things that it's just so hard to, I mean, the fact that Aria has like a Ding Tai Fung now and like, just, I know it's not as good as the Ding Tai Fung around where you grew up in both locales. And, you know, like Ding Tai Fung is like one of those, like one of the things that we talked about with, with Chang was this idea of like, there's always this next door that you can go through in Vegas. Like, you know, when you go check in at the Cosmo, there's like regular check-in, there's like, the, you know, the, the lounge check-in, then there's the VIP check-in, and then there's the real high rollers who never even have to check in because they just pick them up and hand them the room keys and call it a day. So yeah. I, I, do you have any good room stories like that door stories? Like what is the, what's the most elite door that you've ever gone through in Las Vegas? Um, I would say it would have to be, Okay. So all I remember, I don't exactly remember what, maybe it was like MGM, like mansions or whatever, but there is a secret exit out of, um, Hakkasan at MGM, the club that takes yeah. you to this kind of like back way into the mansions area where you can also get into like the MGM private car service as well that takes you to wherever you want to go next. So that's so that a good one. Cool. Yeah. Anytime you don't have to deal with the riffraff getting out of a club, that's the key to life. Oh, it, it no, that was so clutch because it was definitely three or 4 a.m. And the people that I were with were quite drunk. And it was one of those things where they didn't want to be seen publicly, um, given how drunk they were. So we we had, uh, they took us with security. They led us through this really special VIP route. So 
One of my favorite, you talked about like the free chips and salsa at Javier's. One of my favorite stories um, was in Vegas back in the day. I was working for ESPN and it was the Mayweather Pacquiao fight weekend. And Pablo Torre, I don't know if you know Pablo at all, but Pablo, he does, um, he was on ESPN for a long time. And anyways, he and I had just gotten cut meeting like, and this this guy, Max Bredos, who's now the LAFC um, voice of the LFC. We just got cut, meaning like we were done for the weekend. And so we were looking for something fun to do. And so we we're like kind of running around Vegas. And then around 3 a.m., they were like, I'm hungry. Where do you want to eat? And I was like, Oh, I got the place. We went to the Bellagio um high roller area in the back where they have the really good Chinese buffet. And like we just mm. called it the sneaky Chinese buffet. But again, free, just like yeah. your chips and salsa story, and delicious. Yeah. So, no, that's a good, that's a good one. And I do know that that buffet that you're talking about. Um, but yeah, you just I, have to be Asian and act like you belong and no one right. ever says you anything to, to you. You have to be like Asian and pretend like you play pie gal tiles or Bach, you know? Yeah. And you're just like not talkative. You're just kind of annoyed. And you you know, you just <laughs> like when someone's talking, when someone talks to you, you, just kind of ignore them and just keep moving on to the food and just keep eating. So totally, totally. So, Maria, thank you so much for joining. Uh, we'll have to have you again sometime when there's like, like a relevant poker thing to talk about. Maybe if there's a big, another poker scandal or something. So yeah, thank you for joining love, us. I would love to be back. And if you uh, end up playing at your local casino, you have to let me know how it goes. <laughs> I will for sure. Maybe we'll journal this whole journey of me trying yeah. to become a professional poker player. So yeah. thanks. Of course. Well, that was Jeff's interview with Maria Ho. I have not heard it because Jeff recorded it before and I was not on that. So uh, I don't really have much I can say there. I know this has been an unusual episode and the fact that Jeff and I are, are not together and um, and it had double the Peabody's, but uh, we hope you enjoyed it and have a great week and we'll see you all next time. The breakdown, the data, analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are about to end just running off a of leaded.